This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell. With what we put into our heads, with words, tones of voice, visualizations verbally painted, melodic mnemonics deployed, we learn the world around us at deep cellular levels, from the moment we're receiving energetic information in the womb to the very last of our days. We know from anecdotal and personal experience that gardeners are born often from early childhood experiences at the knees of parents, grandparents, neighbors, and neighboring plants and places. While I can't take every child outside with me, I can't hand them all fresh carrots with the clean dirt just brushed off. I can't point to the earthworm or the hummingbird as we hike across a meadow. But with mind over matter, I can conjure all of these things almost as powerfully. I can metaphorically and emotionally nourish children, sing to them, and take them on a field trip through the power of reading to them of all of these wonders and their immeasurable value, complexity, and beauty. This week, we explore the power of children's literature to prepare our young gardeners of today for their actions of tomorrow. We're joined in this by two students of and advocates for the importance of children's literature. Heather Altfelt, poet, essayist, and faculty member in the Honors Program and the Comparative Religion and Humanities Department at California State University, Chico, as well as Teresa Cario, supervisor and instructor in the School of Education at the California State University, Chico, are both in the studio with me today. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Pleasure to be here. So I want to get started with the two of you first, giving listeners a little background on your work with children's literature, what brought you to it as a field of study and a field of educating others and sharing with others, and how you see it interface in your own lives or in the life of your professional work with teaching people the values of nature and gardening and plants. Let's start with you, Teresa. Well, I have a master's degree in multicultural children's literature from the University of San Francisco, and that opened my world to knowing and telling of people's stories you know, it began to ask questions for me of whose story can we tell and whose story do we often hear and whose story do we not hear. Mm -hmm. That, of course, I took straight into the classroom because at the time I was a high school teacher and I looked at the faces of the students in my classroom and it became a, became a love language of needing to know more their stories um, and telling of their stories and writing of their stories. Um, that continued for me then as a mother um, when my son was born and I took a break from teaching and I would go to the library and I would literally come home with 30, 40, 50 children's literature books and we would read and we would read and we would read. So through that, there's just a couple that have, have really been standouts. Um, you know, there's just stories in your mind that you just keep coming back to you in your life um, in new and honest ways. Um, but this whole time, I'm still thinking about my students and knowing that their stories are often not told. And so how can I now as an educator continue that work of knowing people's stories? Because by knowing people's stories, it enriches my life. Um, and then, of course, the being connected to each other can be very rich. And the stories that I brought today have this connection to earth um, and observing, um, being honest, um, and growing, growing together. Heather, let's go to you. What took you to children's literature in the beginning? And uh, tell us a little bit about your your history with it. So I would say my first love really was Charlotte's Web. I fell completely in love with the story. I read it when I was about five and a half. And 
To say it made an indelible impression on my life is such an understatement. I I think of it very often. I actually just got a kitten who we named Wilbur. And it set me on a course for very, very early on, for at first as as the audience for the literature, falling in love with these characters over and over again, often animals, but humans as well. And the moralities that, or the various moralities I was able to absorb as an audience carried me forward into adulthood. And when I started to develop, I suppose, you know, intellectually, I was able to see the the deep significance and the deep wisdom in some of the best children's literature that is there. And how often it works on a metaphoric level to instruct us in simple lessons of kindness and compassion, especially for the planet and for um, the natural world. Where did you do your studies? I studied at Columbia University Anthropology and Writing, and actually I wrote my entrance essay on Charlotte's Web, which was um, kind of a a funny, you know, you get those questions on the essay exams at Columbia, and it's like, tell us about a book that has been meaningful to you. And, you know, I'm sure lots of people use the second volume of Proust or (laughs) something to show off. And I use Charlotte's Web because that really was the book that still continued to speak to me, especially in um, matters of the acceptance of death and very, very difficult things to think about and talk about with children. And then I continued to um, study Waldorf education when my children were little, And that exposed me to both a greater realm of literature as well as giving me a sense of how it fits more clearly into the educational strata of childhood. Um, Now, we keep using this term, children's literature, and that's kind of a big name for, you know, kids' books or whatever, however, whatever we might define it as. But it actually is now a codified field of study. You both have done formalized studies in this. Let's define our terms a little bit. And why don't we start with you, Heather, and give us a little bit of a definition of what what do we mean when we say children's literature? And then we'll talk, um, the three of us, about the different subsets within that bigger umbrella. So... Yeah, this is a really interesting question, and it's one that when I've taught my class, The Literature of the Child at at Chico State, I've addressed it the first day of class, and we continue to talk about it. And what I think of, you know, there are about 5,000 children's books published every year, but that doesn't make all of them particularly literary. Many of them are books that have been written um, as addendums for marketing children's television shows. Um, and so when I think about literature, I think about um, works that have the ability to reveal the conscious mind of the child and speak to their anxieties, speak to their fears, their obsessions, their preoccupations, and to do so well. Um, that the language is beautiful, that there's an aesthetic component to the production that reveals to the child a a certain sense that they're they're not less than the adult world. Yeah. And I think also um, with respect to language, some of the best children's writers, and I, I see you've brought First Tomato by Rosemary Wells, a book I could talk about forever. Uh, the attention to the musicality of language, to the rhythm, to the um, metrics even of the line um, as, a, as a poet, I think those are really important and they have an effect on children for years. Yeah, yeah, for a lifetime. Yes, I um, agree wholeheartedly because the literature that you read are things that really 
stay in your heart for a long time. They're stories that you can read over and over and over again with multifaceted ways that you can grow and think about and challenge yourself and cultivate yourself um, that you just hold on to. Um, and I think from the multi multicultural children's perspective, um, it really goes into that idea of how can we learn from each other? Um, who is writing stories? And, you know, do we have the right to tell somebody else's story? Um, and so, um, you know, honoring your people, honoring the place of where you live, how you're connected to land and your environment, um, and how you can grow from there. So that was a richness for me of learning to know other people's stories that maybe I hadn't always been familiar with in my life, um, though, though they were also very rich stories. It's always wonderful um, to know other stories. Yeah. And I think as our culture right now in the kind of collective consciousness and more openly are grappling with issues of what it is to be a multicultural culture really, truly, representatively. Uh, we see some of this coming out in our children's lit and the evaluation or criticism of it. Age-old, beloved children's writers are coming under some probably well-deserved scrutiny for um, the ways in which their work perpetuated or were complicit in a cultural narrative that persisted or allowed exclusion to persist. Whether they intended that or not, that right there speaks to the power of children's literature to carry a narrative. And it's a narrative that we, at this point in time, especially sitting here at this table, can think about very consciously and say, is that a narrative that we want to perpetuate? Or is it one we want to read and evaluate openly with the child that we're speaking with or how we handle that I think is up to each person but to be at that sort of meta level of awareness about the power of what we read to our children and show to them I think is really beneficial. It is painful of course to have someone like Dr. Zeus or Maury Sendak or whoever it might be called into question and yet it's expanding for all of us. It's, it's an important, I think, exercise um, in, in this conversation, especially when it comes to how we value other people's stories, how we allow space for other people's stories than our own, and um, just being as cognizant as we can in that, in that space. Of course, children's literature also covers just an insane spectrum of ages and reading levels and comprehension levels and even in older young adult literature and here you can go to Harry Potter or um, some you know the Chronicles of Narnia or some of these uh, that are aimed at an older more read on your own uh, set of work there is a visual aspect that is really powerful. And in the younger children's literature, of course, that's one of the things that's hard to get across in a conversation on the radio because the illustrations say as much more than the words. And so that ability for a child to hold um, a board book and just look at the images um, is a whole education in and of itself. Tell us about the different categories and how they are kind of formally defined by children's literature fields of study? Like, is there, you know, a board book? Is that five and under? Is it, what is it? What are the categories, ladies? I think about board books. I used to call them edible books because <laughs> <laughs> children just, they're, they're, they're partially for reading, partially for looking at, and partially for nibbling. Yeah. And um, Teething almost and, yeah. all of our children's books have major tooth marks around the edges, if not missing pages. But um, I don't know. I mean, the board book actually, I think of it as sort of a late 90s marketing uh, tool that, that allowed sort of compressed versions of longer books to be 
marketed toward very young toddlers. And there were really not very many board books around. This is a a new-ish phenomenon. Pat the Bunny was one of the oldest ones. Mm -hmm. The the Runaway Bunny has been in board book form, Goodnight Moon, for quite a while. But the... um, those are really, I think of them as being newish. Newish. But they were, I'm telling you, a really good idea. A long Absolutely. time. They should have come a long time sooner. Yeah. <laughs> the one that has the most teeth marks at my house is Jamberry. Oh, I love oh. that one. Yeah. Love that one. Ours really? is Go Dog Go. Oh, right. Yeah. And the ones that aren't books that are for that same age group all have ripped pages that are taped together as a result of not being board books. Yeah, this is what's called being loved and wanting to go back to <laughs> the memories and the stories. And when your children can, even though they're pre-reading, they are still telling you the stories that right. they have memorized. You know, yeah. this is this is love. This is um, this literary journey that we take our children and our students and the world through that. So, yeah, I I don't want to disclaim or take away from a book just because it's a board book. Oh, no. Right? So mm. in its simplicity, how words are simple but also profound. Um, and then um, I just think that um, an author who's capable of writing a book and this 32-page format. I've spoken with authors before of, you know, novels, and they say, oh, it's so much harder to write a children's book because you really have to nail it. You have to write these words contained in within this format. And so that's profound for me to think about, right? I'm getting my point across in this very structured way. Um, But I also agree that idea of, um, you know, richness of words can be as equally as thought-provoking in a very short format, um, ideas and concepts and challenges um, in just a few pages. And in some, t- in some ways, it almost seems like, you know, it's like a little nugget, a little something, you know, um, you know do I have to read on and on for chapters and chapters? Like maybe my, my, myself is, is more capable of kind of understanding things in this kind of smaller way. Like I don't want to ever have to stop reading children's book. In fact, I often will tell educators, say, in, in high school, high school educators to go to a multicultural children's literature book, maybe from the, the, uh, the viewpoint of a um, – uh, like in, during the Japanese internment, and it's from the viewpoint of that person during this time, and what a nice way that is to maybe mm-hmm. begin their unit in high school, um, because they get to know the story of a specific person, um, and it's a really nice way to begin a unit on something. So it, it's so powerful in so many ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're very effective access points into so much. Exactly. And there is that wonderful adage, like if you if you are a writer, um, you will write a novel. If you are a good writer, you'll write a short story. And if you are a master, you will write a poem. And you might add a good children's book. A good children's yeah. book. Yeah. So you just referred to this, uh, this structural kind of rule which I, I never understood, having read one million children's stories to my daughters. Um, I never knew that there was like a page limit or a word limit. or But there are some requirements isn't, isn't the right word, but there are some form parameters that, that fall here. Describe these for listeners. I think I shared about everything that I know um, okay. in that, in just that they are 32-page format for a children's book. And with um, um, title page, it maybe even go down to 28. Um, but I've never written my own children's book, so I'm not sure if I could speak to the specific parameters other than that it's typically a certain amount of pages. Right. And I think there's a certain number of words, too, in there some, somehow. I'm I'm not certain about that, and I do think there are some writers. I'm thinking of William Steig, who mm-hmm. wrote the original Shrek and um, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble, and his Boris books, and Amos, right? Boris and or Amos, Amos and, and, and Boris, Boris, yeah, Amos and Boris, the Mouse and the Whale. That's oh, so good. I love that book. They're, um, I think, they go. 
They stray from the what I would formula. think of as the formulaic approach. Now, they are older books, but they're, um, they seem to me, both, both in terms of length and vocabulary, they have words in – William Steig would use words like obsequious in a, in a picture book and um, Dr. DeSoto, the dentist, is another one, and not uh, worry that a child won't know what that means. It's just part of the flair of the character. Um, I spent a lot of time at my son's school where they have a very, um, it's a very small but incredible library. And so you can read on the spines of the book. They'll kind of say what grade level mm-hmm. is kind of the focus. And so there is a real variety because you see, you know, first grade, second grade level, and then all of a sudden you see a spine that says eighth grade level. And so you think, okay, you know, like obviously this is the the type of language that is in the book is not going to be at a second grade level. But then that, what does that do? Then it kind of spurs this thing of like, well, your parents are maybe still reading to you this book, or you're looking at the richness of the pictures, or you're growing into some of the words Mm -hmm. um, of this children's book. So, you know, some of the books are on their shelf for them to read to themselves. Some are still being meant to be read to them. Which is wonderful. When do we ever say we should stop reading to our children? Um, I have a fifth grader, and I read to him every single night. And I hope that continues to go through high school, you know, sort of like a family reading. Um, so, yeah, like it's it's wonderful to know that, you know, some children's books are simple in their words. Um, but then others, um, their audience isn't supposed to um detract from the level of language and meaning and content in the book itself. But it really brings a focus for me, listening to the two of you speak about this, as to what we mean by by literate or or literacy, because um, I think this is one of the, the great joys of the podcast or the audible book, is that we aren't all natural readers, book in hand, words on page, focus like this. But the, the power of oral history and oral storytelling is just so human and it goes, you know, from that womb image to to the deathbed and everybody responds to it. And anyone having a uh, the auditory experience. Yes, yeah, having a book read to them from a digital, you know, platform uh, will tell you that so much of the power of that book is in the person reading it. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. This week, as we prepare to leave behind a year, a season, and a decade, and step across the threshold to the next, we are exploring the power of excellent children's literature to grow the next generation of land stewards and gardeners among us. We are joined in this by two educators at California State University, Chico, Teresa Cario and Heather Altfeld. We'll be right back for more with them after the break. Hey, it's Jennifer. I like book roundups at the end of the year. Many people do. This year I thought, let's sow some seeds for the future and the coming decade, as intention setting from the universe. When Teresa Cario, a woman I essentially did not know, called me out of the blue a month or more ago to share her experience with On Meadowview Street and her sensation that this children's book embodied so much of what she enjoyed about cultivating place, it felt like a nudge from the universe. It also reminded me that several years ago, another bright woman, Heather Altfelt and I, had entertained a back-and-forth conversation about the power and resource of children's literature to share forward with the youngest gardeners and nature lovers among us a cultural literacy of care for one another and for the generous planet and planet mates with whom we make this journey. In addition to Heather, Teresa, and my favorite books, I put out a call to you all, listeners and readers, Instagram and Facebook communities, for you to send to me your favorite books. This topic clearly touched a heartstring 
because the input from you has been heartfelt and abundant. Book titles, stories of childhood, of children, of grandparents, of grandchildren, of classrooms and libraries. Thank you. For a full listing of the titles you all submitted as blessings for the coming seasons, please see this week's post under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. It is a great list. Here, though, is a taste of the submissions. I'm going to start it off with two additional titles from Teresa. Wish Tree by Catherine Applegate, published in 2017, and Seed Folks by Paul Fleischman, published in 1997. The folks at Soulfire Farm in upstate New York sent us in the direction of Medium.com to find some of their suggestions. Medium.com's Embrace Race recommendations include titles such as All the World, written by Liz Garten Scanlon, illustrated by Marla Frazee, and recommended for ages 2 to 5. The book is described as following a circle of family and friends through the course of a day from morning until night. This book affirms the importance of all things great and small in our world, from the tiniest shell on the beach to the warmth of family connections to the widest sunset sky. They also recommend Girl of Mine, written by Jabari Asim, illustrated by Luen Pham, recommended for ages 1 to 3. This book is described this way. As Daddy cradles his baby girl, she is suddenly whisked away on a fantastical adventure, swinging above lush floral gardens under the golden moonlight. This sweet text inspired by Rockabye Baby will whisk little ones off to peaceful slumber. Also, another recommendation is A Different Pond, written by Bao Fai and illustrated by Tai Bui, a 2018 Caldecott honor book that Kirkus Review calls a must-read for our times. A Different Pond is an unforgettable story about a simple event in a long-ago fishing trip. Wendy Kean Spray, writer of The Chinese Kitchen Garden, suggested a book that she loves, 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 entitled The Empty Pot, written by Demi. Lynn Richards wrote in with her favorite book being My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craig George. Tenley Nelson, living on a one-acre mini farm in rural Alaska, shared Oxcart Man, written by Donald Hall and illustrated by Barbara Cooney. She also recommended Miss Rumphius, written and illustrated both by Barbara Cooney. She writes, Oxcart Man is my all-time favorite, and I have to agree with her. Oxcart Man is one of my favorites, too. Tenley finished with, Another favorite discovered years ago at the local library when her kids were still little, and that is The Gardener, written by Sarah Stewart and illustrated by David Small. She says, This book makes me cry every time I read it. The complicated dynamic of a child being rehomed during times of economic strife and the ability she has to recreate her environment and bring beauty and joy to her surroundings through her love of gardening is inspiring and beautifully portrayed. Thank you for asking for our titles, she wrote. I greatly enjoyed thinking about it. Abra Lee of Conquered the Soil sent me one of her favorites called My Hair is a Garden, written and illustrated by Cosby A. Cabrera. She says, I love this book. Abra also pointed me in the direction of Tamara Horn and her Instagram page titled Cultivating Curiosities, where she curates children's garden books and gives some excellent recommendations. If you're on Instagram, make sure to check it out. I want to end with this submission from listener Sandy Erber. She wrote, Dear Jennifer, my memory of a children's book is actually a record of a song, The Carrot Seed by Ruth Krauss. I cherished the record and played it over and over. Although the story is about a little boy who persevered and had faith that his carrot would grow, I thoroughly identified as the main character, even as a little girl. Gender identification didn't matter to me, then or now. 
What mattered was the act of planting the seed, watering it, and pulling the weeds. Carrots grow from carrot seeds. All of my siblings knew what Sandy's favorite song was. It wasn't until I was an adult and a mother myself that I saw the carrot seed book. I was thrilled. And most recently, to my delight, I rediscovered the song via Google. My children, as well as my grandchildren, have gardened with me over the years. My theme for my grandchildren is, there are no rules in Grandma's garden. This past May, I became a master gardener in Nevada County. I retired and moved to Nevada City, California, a year ago May, and was very pleased and proud to check this accomplishment on my bucket list. Little did I realize my bucket list started when I was five years old. I enjoy listening to Cultivating Place and look forward to a new conversation every week. My beloved friend Elsie turned me on to your program several years ago. Sadly, she passed away a year ago. When I listen, I have Elsie close in my heart every minute. Thank you, Sandy Erber. And so it goes. This is a living, breathing, dynamic list of titles to which I hope we will keep adding in the coming years. I also hope it will inspire you to read and share more of the best children's literature with the most expansive of gardening and growing intentions with your family and friends, with your library, your local school, your local community garden or little lending library. The possibilities for sowing these seeds are pretty much limitless. Now, back to our conversation with Teresa Cario and Heather Altfelt on the generative power of good children's literature. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Heather Altfelt and Teresa Cario, exploring the wonder, joy, and complexities of children's literature, with the power to grow young human seedlings into gardeners and land stewards for our world for the next decade and beyond. Of the hundreds of children's books that I've read to my son when he was little, one that stand out above many was is called On Meadowview Street by Henry Cole. And it is a simple story, yet profound, of a little girl who moves to a new neighborhood. And she, I think, is thinking about this street name, this Meadowview Street, because she does not see a meadow on her street. And so she's in on the grass and looking, and there's a little flower that pops up. And she um, loves the flower and is intrigued by the flower. And so she gets the materials she needs necessary to create a space in her yard for the flower to grow so it doesn't get um, mowed over by the lawnmower when her, her father does his chores. So um, the little girl notices that a little butterfly comes by, and so another little flower pops up, and so she creates a larger space um, in her yard for um, her flower. And then the space continues to get bigger and bigger, and she starts noticing things. She starts to see more bugs and more birds coming. And as it continues to grow throughout her entire yard, um, she decides that she wants to plant a tree. And so her parents plant a tree. And then uh, now her lawnmower is sitting on the sidewalk, and it has a for sale sign. Um, And the family decides now that they want um, a place for for birds and animals to get a little bit of water, so they create a pond. And the whole time during the book, you can see the neighbors looking over the fence <laughs> about you know what's happening in their yard as they're enjoying their yard and they're observing in their yard. And so what this little girl is able to do in a very short amount of time is to, what she says, is create a home for everybody. And so um, I think the you know, the heartstring here for me is that um, the level of influence that she has 
by simply observing um, and being honest and her curiosity um, and I think her parents' um, intuition to listen to their daughter and her having her you know question um, and accepting of that, like let her do this and let's see where it goes from there until, um, of course, everybody in the neighborhood is going to this creating a meadow. So in a neighborhood where there once was no meadow to be seen, um, this little girl is able to to create a true on Meadowview Street. And um, and how she talks about how she's creating a home for everybody. Because when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of times these things happen with developers and they, they t- make titles for street names that on Meadowview Street because there used to really be a meadow there. Um, and then there isn't anymore because of the um, development of a particular area. Um, but you know, I think that this is where literature really hits a home run is that it um, – maybe looks at some commonplace practices um, of what we do, but if we scratch at all, um, and this is what I encourage my students who are university going to be teachers and have them be able to do with themselves and then with their future students is, let's just scratch a little bit. Let's look at these common sense practices and see if they truly are necessary and how do we go about this? How do we listen more? How do we see a... um, how connected we really are um, and how we can grow through love and um, reaching out to everybody to truly find a home for everyone. Yeah. Did you also have something you wanted to read for us from another selection now that you have summarized why we are all here, which was (laughs) Teresa calling me and saying, I want to read you a story. Thank you so much. So um, I also would like to highlight um, a book called Gathering the Sun, an alphabet in Spanish and English, and is written by Alma Flor Ada, um, and it is translated by her daughter, Rosa Zumbi Zarate, and the illustrations in the book are by Simon Silva. Um, my mentor at the University of San Francisco was Alma Flor Ada, and she um, has a real love of the land and people and honoring people and honoring um, the humble work of um, field workers. And so there are a lot of people in the state of California who are here from the particular region of Oaxaca, Mexico. And so she wrote and dedicated this book to people who um, work and harvest and um, bring to us what we have on our dinner tables every night. And so she would write actually full-page poems that she then uh, cut down her poems in order to make this picture book. So a couple that I'd like to read to you, um, one is for the letter P, pájaro, which in English is bird. Little bird flying over the fields, Where do you take the dreams I place upon your wings? E and F, estrellas or flores, stars or flowers. Are the stars shining flowers that brighten the night sky? Are the flowers drowsy stars that lie sleeping in the fields? Z for zanoria, carrot. The carrot hides beneath the earth, after all. She knows the sun's fiery color by heart. R. Regar. Watering. Your smiles to your friends are like water to growing plants. Thank you very much. I love that. So, Heather, share with us what you have selected. I've brought a book that I remember from my childhood, and actually the copyright looks like it's 1969, and it's called Tucker's Countryside. And it's the sequel to George Selden's The Cricket in Times Square, a beloved classic. And it also actually is about a meadow. And it's, in this case, about a a very old meadow called the Old Meadow that needs to be saved. And uh, just a bit of background about the book, uh, Chester, the cricket from Times Square, has returned to his homeland in Connecticut and realizes that the meadow in which he and all of his beloved friends 
have lived for many, many years uh, is about to be destroyed by developers who want to put up houses and apartments. So he sends a bird, uh, John, <laughs> down to New York City, Times Square, to pick up Tucker Mouse and Harry Cat, who are the beloved friends of Chester Cricket. So I'm, I'm going to read two little sections, if that's all right. In this first section, the cricket, they've just arrived in Connecticut at the meadow, and the cricket is explaining what's going on. The cricket shook his head. It's something very serious. Come on, I'll show you. It's almost sunrise. You'll be able to see. He jumped out the opening of the stump and then on top of it, Harry and Tucker scrambled after him. Above them, a pale lavender light, the color of lilacs, seemed to lift the sky upward. The heavens stood high. Now look all around, said Chester, all around the meadow, and tell me what you see. Tucker and Harry did as they were told. They could see the flat, grassy land around Chester's stump and further off the woodsy part where the meadow began and still farther toward the west, a ridge of hills that were also covered with trees. Here and there, through the brush, through the reeds, they caught a glitter of the brook in its course. In the dawn, the meadow looked so fresh and everything in it that it seemed as if it had just been created yesterday. Beautiful said Harry Cat. But look outside the meadow, said Chester. Look all around outside. Everywhere, on all sides, beyond the hills, beyond the woodsy parts, there were houses. To the east, where the sun was just coming up, two new ones were being built. I only see houses, said Harry Cat. That's just it, said Chester. Houses. Tucker Mouse scratched his head. I don't get it, Chester. What's wrong with houses? It's too long to go into now, said the cricket. I'll explain when we wake up. So later on in the book, after racking their brains for most of the summer, this is what transpires. Like a wind, word spread through the meadow that the mouse from New York had a plan. From all quarters, animals streamed toward Simon's pool. By noon, a great crowd had collected around the log where the little turtle sunned himself. He was lying there now, waiting like the others to hear what Tucker had to say. The mouse jumped up on the log beside him and looked over at the upturned, expectant faces. Friends and meadow dwellers, he began, as you know, the ripping up of your home has already begun. A groan went up from the assembly. Those humans should have known better, said Tucker. But just this morning, I came down with an idea that still might work. Hooray! came a cry from the section where the sundry field mice were sitting. Save the hoorays until we're safe, said Tucker. He went on to explain what happened. And so he tells them this plan, which involves actually sort of forging the site as an old site that can't be damaged because it would be um, taking it out of its historic place. So the mouse says, if we could get the human beings believing that the old meadow was the location of the Joseph Headley homestead and farm, my guess is they won't dare wreck a place of such. His voice became very grand and important. Such historical significance. We just have to fool those stupid human beings. How about it? What do you think? The animals all looked at each other, testing the idea in their minds. Then a few began to smile and a few more began to laugh. A wave of excitement and enthusiasm broke over them. To fool the human beings would be a game, as well as a means of saving the old meadow. Ah, uh, Tucker said Chester Cricket. Excuse me for interrupting you, but even if we can do it, wouldn't it be sort of, well, like a lie? Ah, Chester, Tucker shouted. You're so honorable, it's disgusting. 
Here the human beings are about to ruin your home, everybody's home, and you're worried about telling a little lie? The only other thing I can think of is to wait till Monday morning and have all of us who have teeth big enough to go out there and attack the workmen. We might get the town believing the meadow is full of rabid rodents, but they'd probably come out here and exterminate us anyway. Chester, said Harry Cat, just keep telling yourself it's not a lie. It's a benign deception for everyone's good. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Teresa Cario and Heather Altfeld are both university-level educators, creative writers, thinkers, mothers, and lovers of good children's literature that grows us all. We'll be right back for more with them after the break. Hey now, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week, with a hat tip of gratitude and hell yes to Greta Thunberg. A reminder that excellent children's literature, enlightening and informing the natural and cultural literacy of our world, can also be found through some of the esteemed awards in this field. A full listing of these, compiled by InfoSoup, are also on this week's essay, under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. But some of the most important of these awards include the Caldecott Medal, which honors the artist of the most distinguished American picture book for children, the Newbery Medal, which honors the author of the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children, the Batchelder Award, given to an American publisher for a children's book published outside the United States and subsequently translated into English. The Coretta Scott King Award, recognizing an African-American author and illustrator of outstanding books for children, and the Ballpray Medal, which honors a Latino or Latina illustrator and author whose works best portray, affirm, and celebrate the Latino cultural experience in an outstanding work of literature for children and youth. Finally, FirstNations.org also has a recommended children's literature reading list, including works by people of Native American and Indigenous descent. Make sure to check that out. Finally, if you're not familiar with the work of Maria Popova of BrainPickings.org, she does an annual roundup of children's literature generally, and it's always a treat. She personally rereads The Little Prince every year as a ritual of meaning and memory. You can find links to her past year's lists in this week's post as well. She says, quote, Once a year, every year, I reread The Little Prince and manage to find in it new layers of loveliness and wisdom each time. Always seemingly written to allay whatever my greatest struggle at the moment might be. It is a special book, yes, but it is not singular in being a testament to something I have long believed, that great children's books transcend both age and time. They are exquisite distillations of philosophies for living, addressing in the language of children, which is the language of absolute sincerity, so countercultural in our age of cynicism, the deepest, most eternal truths about what it means to live a meaningful, beautiful, inspired, and noble life. And I would add, for my list, in the garden and on the trail, with our plant and wildlife friends and family. Here is to sowing many more seeds in 2020. Now, back to our conversation with Heather Altfeld and Teresa Cario on the generative power of good children's literature for nature and garden literacy. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Heather Altfeld and Teresa Cario, exploring the wonder, joy, and complexities of children's literature, with the power to grow young human seedlings into gardeners and land stewards for the next decade and beyond. The immensity that we can hold in reading, being read to, sharing books is it literally is as powerful 
as taking someone out into the garden in many ways. And last year, around this time, around the winter holidays, I did a book roundup of great garden books for gardeners and different gardeners submitted their books. And this year I thought, I really want to do a roundup of great children's literature that holds and lifts up and centers these values of the garden and nature and the word uh, that can bring them to life in a different way than even just being out there. But being out there is my first choice. Mm, definitely. It's it's interesting how even when the books are not directly about the garden, mm-hmm. because so many children's books use anthropomorphism yep. to communicate, they're instructing children about the natural world and the sentience of animals in these ways that I think are almost as powerful as taking them out to see those animals because they're brought to us through the imagination of these writers who almost seem to be living or a piece of them is still living on the same wavelength as children and their imagination. I think when it's not a person, it allows children to maybe connect and not have it be feel so vulnerable to have a fox as the, you know, the prime character of the book. Yet I might feel lonely like the fox feels lonely or I might feel and whatever that is so that in a very um, humble and simplistic way, children are able to express their own emotions and connect um, in a beautiful way, you know, where it doesn't have to be a person. It can be, it's just, it's a, it's a lighter side of having to connect about feelings and places and people. Mm-hmm. And plants. It's, it's, you know, the, uh, the granting of beingness, the allowing for beingness of all other organisms, trees and flowers and grasses and rocks. And, um, and I, I have to hope that we as adults going back into these places, it, it, it rehydrates that aspect for us as well and asks us, if not overtly, at least subconsciously, to, um, to shift the way we think about the world and the rigidity that we bring to it in our adulthood sometimes um, and take some of those boundaries down and, and relook at what, what we believe, what our words say we believe, what our actions say we believe, and, um, and maybe rededicate ourselves to um, – to what we really want those things to all be in alignment for. You know, you you think about, I think you called me about on Meadowview Street, not too far off from Greta arriving in the U.S. and sitting in uh, in our country and making a big difference. And I think it's up to all of us to kind of pick those things up and carry them forward in whatever ways we can. I, I want to end by asking each of you to tell me what your greatest hopes for from this conversation are. Like what what made you agree to be um, brave and vulnerable and show up here in person and talk about children's literature uh, on a, a gardening program and podcast? And I'll let you think for a second, and then um, one of you will start. Can I start by reading just a snippet of the end of this book? Yeah. So this is from the perspective of the little girl who lives at the edge of the meadow. Her bedroom faced the meadow, and she kept tiptoeing to the window to peer out under the blind. Off down to the right, where the willow tree grew, there seemed to be a haze of light. The full moon, she thought, glancing off the brook, and fireflies flickering much later in the season than they should. 
and often she thought she heard strange sounds like music at times, clapping and laughter. Could animals laugh, she wondered. Could insects laugh? Could the trees and the brook and the grass laugh? She didn't know. But whatever the magic of this meadow was, on this special night it was clearly collected beneath the branches of the willow tree where there was an old stump the brook curved around. I suppose for me, if you're an adult who has the power to read to a child, I think it's part of an act of the natural world to do so, whether it's reading or telling a story, that narrative and the passing down of narrative is an act of the natural world. I um, so often are looking for more um, connections to hope in the world, and um, I think that um, the way we connect to the wonderful books that are already here that we continue to always come back to and learn from and think about differently are wonderful, but it's also all of the books that haven't been read yet and stories that are told through maybe oral tales that culturally, you know, haven't been put down onto paper. And so it's that um, desire to know that I hope to know more stories and how different cultures are also um, very connected um, possibly in ways deeper connected in, than my own culture. And so by knowing their stories and having uh, people write down their stories, there's more connectivity to us, more honor, more um, love can be shared because we all come from, you know, a common place, you know, this um, common place. And hope is just you know, words away, if that's through a poem or through a short story or through a children's book. Um, and then what a wonderful thing to be sitting next to a person you love and be able to read um, and then even begin a dialogue or people memorizing words of stories. Um, I feel like it is an honor um, to read other people's stories and learn from their stories, learn from children, learn alongside children, children being, you know, very young children, you know, st- uh, school age children to adult children. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it can be a beautiful and um, powerful thing that I am so glad to be a part of. Thank you both very much for being guests today. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be here with you talking about this subject. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful. Thank you for cultivating this in us to then share. Teresa Cario is a supervisor and instructor in the School of Education at California State University, Chico. She received her Master of Arts in Multicultural Literature for children and young adults from the University of San Francisco. She has served as a high school teacher and is the Butte County Library Children's Spanish Storytime Leader. Heather Altfelt is an award-winning poet and essayist. She is also on faculty with the Honors Program and in the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities, also at CSU Chico. Heather's second book of poems, Postmortem, won the 2019 Orison Prize and is forthcoming in the spring of 2020. Her research and areas of interest include children's literature, anthropology and poetry, Waldorf education for K-12, through and things that have vanished. If you have not yet shared with me your favorite stories from childhood that center and uplift an expansive love and valuing of the natural world in our gardens and beyond, please feel free to do so. I will continue to add them to the ever-growing bibliography of such works at cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next year as we welcome the new year and the new decade by considering the lilies with Jojo Clark, outdoor educator 
and lover of lilies, especially the native lilies of the Western United States. Until then, may the new year bring you growth and joy, solace and celebration in equal measure and as needed. Evergreenly, from me to you, there are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, there's a fabulous list of children's literature titles and art you will not want to miss as you set your intentions, direction, and joy for all that you will grow and manifest in 2020. Together, we grow each other. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer, Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. In the next decade, may you ever enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. She ain't mine. She ain't yours. She is a